welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Murder, murder. So this is part two of the professor's obsession. This is really the investigation into the case. And so just to back up, if you haven't listened to part one, the professor's obsession, please go back and listen to it. Laura has this thing about two part episodes, but you really do have to get the first part of the narrative. But just to back up a little tiny bit, this is the Robin Benedict case. Now, Robin Benedict on March 5th, 1983, goes down to reclaim this debt she has from Bill Douglas, who is this professor. She's a prostitute. He had this weird obsessional relationship with her. He owes her some money. She goes down to his suburban home in Sharon. And this is March 5th. March 6th, she disappears. So this is March 6th, 1983. And this is the day after Robin went missing. So when Robin doesn't come home, her boyfriend, J.R., was really frantic, and he tried to file a missing persons report. On that same day, two unemployed guys looking for bottles to redeem at a rest stop in Foxborough made a disconcerting discovery. While searching for bottles, they discovered a garbage bag with a blue man's button-down shirt, a tan corduroy jacket, and a small sledgehammer. All three items had blood on them. So Laura, these guys are collecting cans and bottles and that kind of thing. And they make this discovery. And at first they're sort of frozen by this. They don't know what to do. Then they go to the Foxborough police and tell them. And the Foxborough police go down to that rest area and they pull out this bag with these really suspicious, sketchy items in them. What happens is initially there's no missing persons report, but they find that there's a missing persons report out of Malden, Mass, and that's been generated by JR. Right. So it takes a few days before. So this isn't immediately apparent. It takes a few days for that to... Exactly. And and when they find out that Robin was wearing a tan corduroy jacket, they make the match to Robin. But talk about JR. Well, the interesting thing about JR going to the police initially is he goes right away. He goes right away. And we have to think about the time frame here. We're talking about the 80s. He's an African-American man. He has a criminal record. She's been arrested for prostitution. So this basically looks like a pimp going in to look for his missing prostitute girlfriend. So the police don't really take him that seriously in the beginning. And And they even suspected him. They suspect him. And he comes off as very suspicious in the way he appears. Now, appearances can be deceptive. 
because as they sit down and talk to JR, he just falls apart. He is crying, he's frantic, and on his own, before even going to the police, he's hired a private investigator. And he spent, I think, about $1,400 at that time, a significant amount of money to have Robin found. So the police, I think, realized pretty quickly that this is not just some criminal looking for his prostitute. Exactly. And J.R., I don't think Robin's parents and J.R. had the best relationship, but after Robin goes missing, she just doesn't come home. J.R. contacts Robin's parents, and they all kind of get together. They form an alliance, basically. Right. And Robin's parents go to the press. They're all looking for Robin. Right. In a sense, blamed him for her turning to prostitution. And so they weren't crazy about him when Robin was around. But seeing his reaction and how badly he wants to find her, they do form an alliance with JR. Absolutely. Which will go on for quite some time. So let's look at Bill Douglas's movements. Right after she disappears, Bill Douglas goes to a science conference in Washington, D.C. So the two PIs that J.R. hired, they go down to Washington and they talk to Douglas. You know, he was attending this conference. He's at a hotel. He says, yes, I, I took the train down from Boston. And they say, why did you take the train? I mean, why not fly from Boston to Washington? And he's like, oh, I had to check papers and blah, blah, blah. But he gives them this very offhand account about his relationship with Robin. It's like, oh, she's just a friend and that kind of thing. And the PIs notice that Douglas has this head wound and he gives them two contradictory stories about how he gets this head wound. He says, oh, I smashed it into a cabinet. And then at another time, he tells them he got mugged in Boston. Mm -hmm. And he's nervous. These guys are very suspicious. And this is kind of unusual because the PIs are also working with the police department, the Malden police in this particular case. But in the Benedict case, Laura, you have got the, like we mentioned, the, the Foxborough PD, in particular, this guy, Paul Landry. You've got Dwyer from the Boston PD and other Boston PD people and Malden PD. So these all three police departments are working on this missing person's case. It's really amazing that J.R. did hire the private investigators or this information would never have been gained. If he hadn't hired that PI, the wound, all that stuff could have been never Recovered, Recovered, because nobody would have, there was nothing to question him about yet. Yes, exactly. And, you know, these days, honestly, PIs and police don't generally work together. We just don't. However, back then, this PI must have had some police contacts because they're working with the Malden police on this, basically. Like, they give the Malden police this information. So you're right. They preserve it by going down there. Right, because the police don't have anything to investigate at this point. There's no connections to, I mean, they have a missing person, but they don't have anything that leads Douglas, you know, except for JR's word. Yes, exactly. And this is the word of a pimp, frankly. Exactly. From from the police point of view, let's be honest, they probably were like, they probably had a little bit of a jaundiced eye about him initially. Right, versus an Ivy League trained Tufts professor. Yes. Whose, his name is much more in the community. But they also start to really investigate Bill Douglas, and they start looking into things like people talking about how he was with Robin, how obsessive he was with Robin. 
Meanwhile, too, let's not forget there is this huge financial boondoggle with Tufts. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. I think the police figure out pretty soon that he's simultaneously being investigated at Tufts for financial indiscretions, embezzlement, basically. Yeah, fraud for $67,000. He's stealing grant funds from Tufts, and he's under investigation for it. So they look into the nature of Bill Douglas's relationship with Robin. They talk to witnesses. They talk to people at Tufts. They really start drilling down on Douglas. And within a couple of weeks, Douglas is called down to the Foxborough police station. And they get a search warrant for his house, too. There, the police find some pretty sketchy stuff. They find Robin's purse. They find an address book that belongs to her, a pair of her pink panties. They find garbage bags that match the ones at the rest stop, Laura. And they also find a blue windbreaker with blood on it. And a fingernail-sized piece of human brain tissue. And this is pre-DNA, but they recover these items. I'm also curious as to how they got the uh, warrant for the search warrant. And it must have been based on the fact that she was last seen at Douglas's house. And he admitted that she had been there that night. And there were phone calls. I was just wondering what the police presented to get that search warrant. What I think is they drill down on Douglas. Okay, first of all, he tells them when he speaks to the police, he tells them, oh, yes, Robin came down, but I went to bed after she told me she was going to go to a party afterwards in Boston. Well, they look at his phone records and they look at his credit card statements. Apparently, he was so cash broke that he was using his credit cards to like buy coffee on the night that she disappeared, like at Howard Johnson. So like, it's clear that he's lying to them. So if you recall, there's that blue man's shirt that they also pull from the rest stop bag. Okay, and so this is just a button down Oxford, but it's definitely Douglas's size. And they show it to Nancy, who's Douglas's wife. The shirt has been mended with thread. And they asked Nancy if she had mended the shirt, and she actually turned over spools of thread that matched the thread on the shirt. So there's no doubt that this is Douglas's shirt. So sorry, even with this damning evidence, the police still have an uphill battle. And part of this uphill battle is proving that Robin has even been murdered. I mean, this is pre-DNA, so... They really can't prove at this point that that blood or anything is Robin. That's true. So they take those items to a lab and through Robin's family, though, they identify that that is Robin's blood. I don't know how they do it back then. It must have been some pre- It was markers. They they were able to find like genetic markers from each parent. So I think it was maybe kind of pre-DNA where they were able to just look at certain genetic markers. It's, it's so interesting to think about it because you never really hear about this. You hear about like DNA or pre-DNA, but right. they were blood able, type, yeah. Right, but they were able to determine that this was Robin's blood, and this is what nineteen eighty-three. Yeah, this is eighty-three. It's so it's so interesting to me. But in part of the search of Douglas's records, they also find that Douglas, like he had told the investigators before, he had not left from Massachusetts on train to Washington as he had claimed. They find that he charges a ticket from New York City. So what had he done with both Robin's body and Robin's car? 
So there's all kinds of speculation about this. They didn't find the car. They had no idea where Robin's car was. And some of the speculation is pretty wild about what happened, what he did with Robin's body. They have no doubt in their mind that he is their guilty party now. Oh, absolutely. And some of it was pretty interesting. They thought maybe he had dismembered her body and then dumped it along rest stops down on his way down to, they think maybe the car is in Rhode Island or New York. They're not sure. All they know is that he lied to them about taking the train from Boston down to Washington, D.C. to this conference. They also think maybe he had taken her to Tufts and burned her body there. And, you know, there had been other really brutal, similar murders around. They're even thinking, is this guy a serial killer? But they can't find this car. But in July of 83, what happens is Douglas had parked Robin's car in this garage in New York. Nobody's paying for this car. It's abandoned. He had taken the plates off. And so this garage tows the car out to the street. And NYPD called in and it's this abandoned car. And when they look in the car, there's blood, there's pine needles in the car, and they try to match it to any missing persons, basically. And it comes back, the VIN number comes back to Robin's missing car, which is a silver Toyota. So anyway, NYPD gets in touch with the police up in Massachusetts, and they recover the car. But again, there's not enough. The major problem that investigators have with this case, even with the blood in the car, even with the blood on the jacket, on his shirt, the sledgehammer, the small piece of brain they find in the windbreaker pocket, there's still not a body. No corpus delecti in this case. Right. But it's starting to mount. The it is. evidence and circumstantial evidence is starting to mount. Add on the financial pressure he was under. When you start to look at the rest of his life, you can start to see the pressure building up and almost a motive for him to snap and kill her. Another thing I think we probably should address is the press coverage of this story, because this was an enormous story in Boston. And this was the eight. I mean, this would be an enormous story today and anywhere, I think. This is this is a very sexy story. I mean, it has everything, right? I mean, it has this Ivy League educated professor. It has this beautiful young prostitute who was a smart girl. All these different elements that made it very sexy, made, made, right? Made the public extremely interested. Even like the NFL, if you remember, like Ray Caustic. There's right. that kind of glamour. There were a lot to of it. right. Yeah. And, you know, much to Robin's parents' dismay, there was a lot of focus on the fact that she was a prostitute. You know, and I think I want to point out the press coverage and the fact that there was so much press coverage, really to talk about the fact that there were so many other prostitutes killed in the combat zone that never got any press coverage. And I'll talk about a case I'm sort of intimately familiar with towards the end of this. I mean, there were so many women found dead in Boston. We never even heard of them. Their names never made the paper. And because, as we like to say, it's when town and gown collide is when we hear these stories. Right, right. Until, right. until the two clash, as long as kind of everyone's staying within their lanes and harming each other, we don't hear as much. So this caused Robin's parents a lot of pain to have this, you know, in the paper all the time, their daughter, a prostitute. But it's the nature of the press. And, in, you know, in a way, it was what got 
a lot of these leads because there was so much coverage. Absolutely. And so William Delahunt, who was the Norfolk DA, is really feeling the pressure, but the case is closing in on Bill Douglas. One of the most solid circumstantial cases you could build against somebody without a body. Right. And it's less, I mean, it's less common than to have a case without a body. So they really had to nail it. But let's talk about what's going on for Bill Douglas at this point. He had been fired from Tufts. He sets up with this other new laboratory, I think somewhere in Rhode Island. He's devolving. I mean, he's faking test results. He's like pulling a full Elizabeth Holmes on this stuff. And he loses that job. He goes to the YMCA to work as like a desk clerk at this point. Laura, ironically, he's reduced to scrounging for bottles and cans because he was so financially straitened. But he gets arrested in October of 1983, and he's denied bail at this point, and he is fully on trial for first-degree murder at this point. He gets indicted, and I mean, the the trial proceeds. They move ahead, and he gets actually what I think was a phenomenal lawyer. Phenomenal lawyer, yes, and his name is Thomas Troy, but there are some pretty wild defense theories. So talk about the... Well, I mean, they didn't have much to work with. Douglas is claiming his innocence, which, I mean, is very hard to do in this case. And Well, well but one of the things, you got to talk about the ketosis, please, and explain to our listeners <laughs> what the hell well, ketosis they, is. They waver in their defense between, well, I mean, I think Troy really knows there's like no winning this case. And he really pleads with Douglas to plead insanity, or which we know is not a very good defense and very rarely wins. And they even toy with this defense of ketosis and cocaine, which is quite a diet. Well, uh, so, so ketosis is when I, anyone who's been on Atkins knows it's when you take away the carbs and sugar or certain foods from your diet, your body goes into a state of ketosis and burns its own fat. And this is something... But you, how does it affect you mentally? Like your, your well, mental. I actually never knew it did affect you mentally, except for you really want carbs, uh, because I've done this before. But apparently, they give all these other things that ketosis can do, like make you hypersexual or make you erratic, not just want bread. And um, it, it, This is like the Twinkie defense. No, yeah. This, yeah, that's do. a West Coast defense. <laughs> and actually, that did work in California in the Harvey Milk case, the Twinkie defense. Those defenses, and I hate to say it, do work better on the West Coast. We're much tougher on the East Coast. And I mean, that was never going to fly, that you were on a diet and you did too much Coke. So you like, we lost it. Although I actually think that had Douglas pleaded like manslaughter, self-defense, he may have had a better argument. Douglas continues to profess his innocence and turn down Troy's advice on these various defense arguments. Because uh, Troy can see the reality. He's got the bird's eye view that it, Douglas is not going to win this case. He's got a loser of a case. So he's trying to convince Douglas. I mean, he has all this evidence against him. He's not a likable kid. I mean, he, everything is going against him. And Troy does finally convince him four days into jury selection. He approaches the DA and they start to make a deal. This, I think, was an inevitability I and the DA had hoped for and would save the family and everybody a lot of pain. And they confer with the family, as they often do, about lowering the charges. And the family agrees in, in hopes that Robin's body will be found. And that's really, I think, why ultimately the plea was reached. 
Yeah, exactly. They're really hoping to get Robin's body back to lay her to rest. Yes, there's a good, strong case against Douglas, but they don't have their daughter back. Exactly. To to so they're her. hoping they he'll get a lesser sentence. They're going to plead him down to second degree murder, maybe 18 to 20 years, and they'll find Robin's body. And that seems like something everyone can live with. But that's not quite how it turns out. Because when Douglas does confess, and I mean, his confession is quite one-sided and, you know, Robin's the aggressor and came after him. It's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous confession. But he does talk about disposing of the body and driving around. And I won't drag you through the whole confession because it's long and it's drawn out. But ultimately, the body's never recovered. And I think it's quite possible he did put the body in one of these dumpsters, but it would have been picked up fairly quickly. And he claims that he doesn't remember that he drove around that night and he thinks it's by this shopping mall in Rhode Island. So they even searched this landfill near where those dumpsters would have gone with all the refuse and everything like that. But I think he's just playing cat and mouse with them. I I think he knows exactly what he did. Oh, see, I don't. I just, I think he put the body in a dumpster and that just would have been picked up within the week. Yeah, maybe. maybe. I mean, I, I don't think he had the wherewithal to bury the body or put the body in the woods somewhere. Yeah, 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 maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, we'll never know. Yeah. And, and some of these killers enjoy having that information. I don't know what happened that night. I think they probably did get into a fight. I think they probably did struggle. And I think he just lost it. I think he just snapped and killed her and then panicked. He has this dead prostitute in his house, and he's got to get rid of the body. I think Douglas is a bad guy. I don't think he was really a killer. I, I think either. that he was, I'm not making excuses for him, but I think he was pushed to the, through his bad choices, pushed to the brink in every way and desperate. And there was a fight and he snapped. His obsession became lethal, essentially. Exactly. And all led in the finances and losing his job and the family. So Douglas is sentenced to 18 to 20 years. And he serves nine. Yeah, he's out in nine. Within the first year of being incarcerated, he meets another woman and marries her. Yes, and he's still married to her. Wow, yeah. People think he might be over in London now. And and I really just, you know, my heart goes out to Robin Benedict's family to lose a beautiful young daughter like that at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think it also shows all victims are important. doesn't matter what they do for a living. It doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll just tell a quick anecdote because as we've said time and time again, if Robin Benedict's murder, if she had been murdered by a pimp or a John from the combat zone, this probably may have made the press temporarily, but I don't think it would have garnered the press coverage that it got. I wanted to talk about a PI experience that I had a few years ago, and I, I went to go and talk to a witness on a case, and this was at Sousa Baranowski in Massachusetts. This is like the maximum security prison. This is where they put the really, mm. really bad people. And I went to go and speak to a witness. The guy's name was Robert Larkin, and he uh, he was in Sousa Baranowski for life. I didn't really know much about him seemingly nice guy and that kind of thing. And and uh, went back and I Googled his case. And he and two other guys, one of which is named Sean Kane, murdered 
a 17-year-old prostitute by the name of Sonia Leal. And they tortured her, and they murdered her, and they dumped her body in the Quincy Quarry. And bizarre twist of this is that Sean Kane basically gave evidence to the government, and he got out earlier, and he also gave the police evidence about the body of another prostitute, Laura, which means that he had knowledge mm -hmm. of or involvement in, in her death. And he is out, a free guy now in Boston. So... This is absolutely frightening to me. I believe, to my knowledge, Larkin and the other person, they're still incarcerated. But the frequency with which prostitutes were killed in the combat zone. And, yeah, is well, and, and still are harmed. It's, it's very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so uh, this sort of concludes our combat zone series. So it's been super fun deep diving into the combat zone and and finding out about these cases and the history and it's a big part of Boston history. I feel like we're combat zone scholars at this point. <laughs> Absolutely, murder, murder, murder.